0: Welcome to season 11 and episode 131 overall of the Get Cyber Resilient show. After having a few weeks gap in April, it's great to be back behind the microphone. Today is our Behind the Cyber News edition of the show. I'm Dan McDermott, your host, and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity expert, Garrett O'Hara. Today, we will begin by looking into the United Nations Cyber Crime Treaty, due to be released in June and its implications on global law enforcement. Next. We will review the top five most dangerous cyber attacks for 2023, as announced by SANS Technology Institute at the RSA conference last week. And our final deep dive story is how the federal government and Minister Claire O'Neill has warned that Australia faces a dystopian future of cyber attacks targeting the fabric of our society. And we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. Ga welcome back to the pod. And as always, there's plenty of news headlines for us to delve behind. But I do notice you're flying solo today. There's no Vin joining us. Yeah,
1: Vin is, is currently, uh, I'm going to dox him here. He's on holidays over in Japan, having a great time uh, with his wife. So um, we're getting photos from, <laughs> from places like Mario World. Um, <laughs> so he's definitely living his best life over there in Japan.
0: Oh, fantastic. Glad he's having a good time and uh, we'll, uh, we'll carry the, the fort for him while he's uh, while he's away. As I mentioned, the first story is all around the United Nations Cybercrime Treaty. What is all this about and is this something new and, and what's the benefits going to be for us, Gar?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think the benefits question is probably there's a question mark over that. And given that it's not even a first draft uh, in the first draft yet. It's going to be released in June. So we're kind of, I suppose, all waiting to see what actually um, that looks like. And at that point, I'm sure we'll have more to go on. Um, but, you know, the, the long and the short of it is, I think what you're seeing is a, a cohesion around the importance of cybercrime and, and, you know, obviously the UN being what it is, um, putting a treaty together with the member organizations to help uh, build on um the work that they do in terms of kind of fighting against um cybercrime and it's important to note it's it's this is going to like add on to the budapest uh, convention or budapest i think i always say that wrong people from hungary always correct me so budapest uh convention um which is what that's over 20 years old now but it's actually been the the thing that much of the cooperation around cybercrime has been based on. So I don't think it's going to replace that, but it does seem like it's going to expand the scope of what the UN can do as an organization and, um, you know, kind of go from there. Um, there's a bunch of countries that are involved in uh, the Budapest Convention, so nearly 70 of those, and then, you know, a bunch of others that kind of align to the, to that as a convention or a document. So, you know, the not that the work is already done, but a large part of the work, it sounds like, is in place for international cooperation around cybercrime, and then what you're looking at is probably an evolution, you know, a V2, V3, you know, whatever you want to call it of what, what that original work was. Um, as is the way with these things, um, there are some organizations and some some folks who are, uh, I suppose, questioning it. The Electronic Freedom Foundation, um, Article 19, which is around kind of, you know, I suppose, press freedoms and that kind of stuff, have made submissions around making sure that um, cybercrime isn't conflating data protection and personal privacy issues. And so I think there's a little bit of a worry, as as you and I have talked about so many times when it comes to you know legislation and law that in theory and on paper it looks amazing, and then the devil is in the bait, potential for it to be misused and the potential for... You know what's good law in one country or a treaty in one country actually then being misused in a country that maybe has an author- uh, authoritarian—that's a hard word to say—authoritarian uh, regime in place. And you know, it, one thing for Australia to line by this, and then there's probably countries that people can think of where um, this is the sort of stuff that could be misused to um, push back against you know freedom fighters, journalists, um, you know all those kind of people that we often and always point to when this stuff comes up.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? That it's the nations that are really pushing for for this, uh, I guess, update. You know, uh, led by Russia, Cambodia, Belarus, China, Iran, uh, Nicaragua, Syria. Um, interesting that they're the ones on the side of pushing forward with a lot of this, and then there is that resistance around, like you say. I guess that notion from many other nations around. What does it actually mean? Because this goes to the heart of surveillance and what is possible and the sharing and and that of information and potentially, like you say, the locking down and blocking of information as well. So it's just really interesting time as well, I think, as we know through, you know, through the whole Ukraine experience um, and we know that the notion of, you know, that Russia have been actively, you know, waging a a war on both the cyber and the kinetic front at the same time and trying to coordinate those at times as well Um, and really seeing that there's a new, I guess the new way of warfare going forward is whose cyber is a part of that So just really interesting timing and the nations that are involved. And I can only imagine uh, some of the negotiations at the UN on this one. I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see where it actually lands and, and what sort of constraints might be put in place, as you say, to make sure that it is actually doing what it's intended to do and not have some of those unintended consequences. Yeah,
1: unintended consequences uh, should be chiseled onto every single technology uh, and every advance you know, humanity thinks it's made. And uh, it's all amazing until we go, oh, hang on. We never realized ChatGPT was going to take away all these jobs and is now our overlord. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like I, I think you're spot on, Dan. I think there is a, a general heightening in the zeitgeist of cyber. Whether that's crime, whether it's warfare, you know the the privacy considerations um, influence attacks uh, that uh, Dr. Chase Cunningham talked about uh, probably a couple of years ago at this stage. Um, you know, it, I think the penny's dropped that like all of this stuff is overlapped. There's a Venn diagram, and in the middle, there's a bit where all three circles, or four circles, or five circles, or however many, they're all um, overlapping. Um, but yeah, like to to your point, very interesting to see where this actually lands given that like the first draft is in June so how quickly it either gets resolved and ratified into something that is a treaty and what that actually looks like
0: for sure well one to keep an eye on and uh, and when it comes about i'm sure we'll be able to update our audience on, on what that what has happened what it means and some of those implications as we start to go forward as well Yeah, uh, last week had probably if not the largest, maybe the most well-known cyber conference in the world uh, happening in San Francisco, um, RSA Conference. Um, unfortunately, neither of us were there. Um, but one of the a key aspects that actually came out of that was uh, from SANS Group. And they talk about what are the top five cyber attacks for 2023. Give us a rundown of what, they, what they've informed us of.
1: Yeah, this is a good one. Um, I quite like. I quite like. I and mean, probably just because it's a listicle, but uh, you know, they had expert instructors from the SANS Institute on a sort of stage and panel, kind of going through what they consider the most dangerous um, cyber attacks that we can look forward to in 2023. Um, and in at number six, I really want to do a DJ voice for this one. <laughs> in at number, uh, sorry, at number five, uh, weaponizing AI for social engineering. Like you and I have talked about this, and we, you know, we just mentioned ChatGPT. And um, David Higgins, when he's on, talked about this as well—the kind of lowering of the bar to create reasonably convincing social engineering attack, and the amount of noise that this starts to uh, generate for already busy security operators and, and and employees. That's the other part of this. You know, the the bit where Dan and Gar are sitting, you know, just doing their jobs, and the emails that uh, you know we we might not have been sort of trick by um these days that that ain't the case anymore you know with the emergence of uh, large language models and and you know when you think about the scary part of this is (laughs) we're at the early days of this you know chat gpt the the quantum leap between three and four is significant and then you just think roll this forward even a few years and um yeah, all bets are off. Um, you know, and we, we're talking about social engineering. There's obviously other parts of AI that I think we'll get to as well that um, that are, are pretty scary. But yeah, I think everybody's kind of got their, what's the expression, shields up. You know, their scooby ears are in full kind of, um, you know, peaked mode listening out and, and watching for the use of ChatGPT and other large language model uh, AI to, yeah, to affect really good social engineering.
0: Yeah, we've definitely spoken about the fact that like, what it is allowing is for that to happen at scale, right? To have, at the moment, the notion of being able to do really good social engineering takes effort and time and research and people and thought and things that are costly and timely. This takes away all of that and does it at scale. So it's like, that's the frightening part. And it would be interesting to see just how, what sort of volume of attacks we'll be uh, looking at this year and beyond. All right, come on, number four. At number
1: four, offensive uh, <laughs> uses of AI. Um, you know, again, sort of linking to to kind of what you just mentioned there, but it is around the just the huge explosion of what almost seems like sentience. And I know when, you know, Vin has been on, the three of us have talked about how like it's nearly impossible to not picture a you know, everyone's probably get their own picture of what ChatGPT looks like. A little bit like, you know, if people are into God, you know, what does God look like? Is it a <laughs> is it male, female, big beard? You know, like what what is that picture for you based on your religion? Um, ChatGPT feels like that where I think it's hard not to anthropomorphize um, this. And here we are, like you can use it basically as an offensive AI tool. And then here you're, you're sort of asking it questions to help you maybe uncover a zero day. So, you know, without having to be a cyber experts, you know, be able to be clever enough to ask the large language model to, you know, find zero days that um, maybe exist in existing code or applications, Um, or even, you know, and we've talked about this, the thing of writing malware or ransomware, and, you know, the the comeback is often, well, we'll, you know, we'll write in the protections to stop it from uh, writing the ransom or malware. Um, But then, you know, as I've said before, and it's not my analogy, but, same as 3D printers are designed to stop you printing a gun they aren't designed to stop you printing a barrel and the magazine and the, the thing you hold in your hand and blah blah blah, all the parts of the gun so um, I think that's what you're going to see um, scary times ahead
0: Indeed, well, moving away from AI what comes in at number three? Number three, developers as a target um, I'm, ne- I'm never
1: going to be radio to you <laughs> um, I, I don't think this is a surprise you know we saw a few instances of this last year and uh certainly um van and yourself and myself talked through uh like uber and you know those instances where the people who are traditionally seen as the kind of tech geniuses gurus the people who would never fall for this kind of stuff are the ones who are the way into the organization quite often through social engineering so you know the the sort of um smfa bombing and uh, using side channels like WhatsApp or Slack to you know try and get people to do the thing of accepting the MFA, um, the push notification and you know and then away you go, lateral movement within uh, the organization onto whatever systems. Um, this isn't new. I mean, I remember years ago um, I think it was a company in Perth. I don't know what I was I was doing some kind of research on as we do, like looking at um, stories, what's kind of going on. and one of the stories was um, a developer in Perth had been popped. And And at the time, it was like you know that was amazing like how how did this happen? And you know clearly these are the most um, clever people, and um, that isn't always the case. Developers can be amazingly good developers, and security unless it's part of their uh, their training and their thinking, like being a developer is not the same as being a secure developer.
0: and I think the other aspect of that one is is the potential for you know malicious insiders, right, and like the most potentially the most valuable type of malicious insider could be a developer now. And so that opens up, you know, a whole range of new, I guess, uh, threats and I guess opportunities for the bad guys in terms of actually who they're targeting and what they're trying to get out of that as well. So definitely an interesting one and one that, yeah, like you say, we've got awareness and make sure that everybody's doing the right things, but also not for people to be able to, you know, to turn to the dark side when, because uh, when, I'm sure opportunity will come knocking for, for a number of people. Moving to number two. Number
1: two uh, is malvertising. Um, it feels wrong to use that kind of frivolous tone, actually, when we're talking about stuff that causes so much pain and hassle for the the world. Malvertising, um, look, it's not old; uh, it's it's been around for yonks. Um, like this is the kind of stuff that when we're scanning URLs, we're always looking for malvertising on the pages that we visit. So you know, before a user gets to get the malvertising, we you know, as as a company, will look for that, and we've done that for a really long time. You know, not a not an ad from Mimecast, but just more to point to the, like this isn't new stuff. Um, the SEO side of it um, is interesting, and it's it's folks in the marketing teams obviously have a an interest in SEO to get things to the top of the organic search lists. Um, but attackers can do exactly the same thing, so using uh, paid for advertising, SEO, SEM, and you know get their stuff to trickle to the top. So when somebody does a search for whatever it may be, um, a bit of software or um, you know uh, an image then you can basically get your ad to go to the top and you could even get into the point where you're using things like cousin domains, all the stuff we've talked about so many times, um, you know, cloned websites, that kind of stuff that, um, you know, that looks legit but actually could be very easily a malicious ad. So it's been around for a really long time advertising and, and then potentially the use of SEO as a way to get those dangerous um the dangerous ads or or dangerous uh, websites to the top of the search results is probably the bit we'll need to maybe worry about more than we did before.
0: I feel like I need to say spoiler alert for number one, because I think you've covered it. Oh, the SEO boosted attacks. Yeah. It's
1: hard to, (laughs) like, it's hard to kind of unpick those two, right? I mean, yeah, it's such a funny one. Um, like the malvertising is delivered through advertising the way you get that to the, um, to the people is basically get your your advertising to the top of the list so um i don't get to do at number one seo boosted attacks but i might as well <laughs> just ram it in there anyways but yeah like they're they're absolutely linked together um so you know impossible to kind of get away from them and um you know seo sem is has obviously been around for some time but brilliant way of getting your advertising and other attacks out there
0: yeah, indeed, and like obviously intrinsically linked one and two, right? But I think the thing is, is about like like you say, there is other ways of probably trying to deliver the malvertising that is now it's blocked, it's taken care of. But when you're doing it via search, those those same I guess techniques, um, from a cybersecurity perspective, are not in place, and so therefore, you know, if you're doing it via search, it's almost sort of you know ungated it feels like you know in terms of the ability to actually access that information and so definitely uh in the uh, i guess uh uh, and maybe a, a slightly newer take on how to make sure that that malvertising is being delivered, you know, at scale with maximum impact. So definitely one to look out for. Um, so even one of those things where you've even got to be aware of what you're searching for and what results might come back. So another one for uh, for for people to be aware of as part of their own sort of due diligence. But not an easy one to spot.
1: Yeah, definitely not. And I think you're spot on, by the way. But your your comments on, you know, that. Protecting the browser as a space where, um, you know, it's pretty easy to click an outbound link if you've got a gateway in place or, you know, decent firewalls can do a lot of that stuff. But um, the bit where somebody's just randomly searching through through the Internet and then gets directed to some site that's got malware on it um, or a watering hole attack because of um, SEO, um, definitely more tricky.
0: Indeed. Well, after uh, hearing about those top five, um, we've also been warned by Minister Claire O'Neill that Australia is facing a dystopian future with cyber attacks targeting the fabric of our society. Uh, This sounds like headline news to me. Is this real? Do we need to be worried? What's happening?
1: Dan, I think we're we're probably about three years away from the Hunger Games and um, I've started doing a lot of uh, cross-training, fitness, um, my archery skills have just increased so much um, you know, with this uh, this pending dystopian future. Um, oh, look, I don't think it's dystopian future, I think it's the stuff that anybody in this industry has been talking about for a really long time, so um, I think it's really good and useful that like Claire O'Neill has kind of made it retail politics and is in you know, mainstream media talking about this stuff, getting the, the word out there. Um, but I you like in terms of new information, I don't really think there's anything in here, but it's more, I think there's a new energy and hopefully as, an, um, as Australia kind of moves forward, there's a new energy behind how important cyber is. Um, that might fit in more um, broadly in the politics of Australia, just given the rejig of the army and the acceptance of like what used to work won't work as we go forward and you know i think from that perspective pretty good for claire to come out and kind of call this out and what she's talking about here by the way is the stuff that you and i and anyone who's in cyber has talked about for a really long time which is the massive level of digital interconnection of pretty much everything that you do as a human being these days and very hard to you know go buy a tiny house and then live off the land um you know like a ted Kaczynski um type of character these days like it's you know we we've accidentally moved towards a cashless society because of covid so you know all, all of the things where you you know, potentially could have started a militia in the mountains or in the back backwaters of australia like that stuff has just gotten much much harder you know if you're actually going to go and buy stuff you got to do it by card if you drive a car chances are it's probably connected to the internet these days even if it's not a an um an ev you know, a lot of the, the diagnostics and, and certainly high-end cars are even doing things like um, you know feature as a service where you buy your luxury car and then you know they say well that's cool but you now your your heated steering wheel you only get that if you pay us ten dollars a month extra and they'll turn it off via software so you know point there is everything nearly everything I should say is digitally connected um, and I think what Claire is pointing to here is just literally that you know the the potential for attack and impact to a society it's not what it was a year ago, three years ago, ten years ago, and it is getting worse and worse every single year. Um, and th- this is pretty much it. What I like about her comments here is that, and it maybe reflects actually some of what you said earlier. Um, it's not like cybercrime and the impact to a, a country's sort of security can be you know unpicked, where we just have to worry about uh, you know nation state attacks. Like she's making the point that. Rightly making the point that we could see, you know, um, attackers just your common cyber criminals, not nation state attacking um, an organization in Australia that potentially causes huge, huge impact to Australian citizens. So, like safety and resilience at a cyber level for this country is more than just nation states, but actually like the cyber crime um, impact, um, the impact I should say of cyber crime. So that's I think actually a pretty pretty important part of what she's saying. And then she's also talking about, and I think this is really good, um, starting to do almost national level uh, instant response plans or you know b- b- uh, exercises where we really start to understand what happens if a bank becomes unavailable and you know from conversations I've had over beers with some people like that's a scary story to kind of run through. And like I, I think her points around looking at what is the worst and then planning around that. And that's that like that's not crazy talk that's that's pretty sensible, I would say the you know in this day and
0: age yeah, and it feels like a continuation of critical national infrastructure, you know what does that mean? why do we have those sort of you know standards in place? why are we holding that to such a high account? It is because we know of the the widespread impact and we've seen many attacks, you know, that have had, you know, shutting down of, you know, oil pipelines or, you know, taking over hospitals or, you know, uh, power grids, all of these sort of things. We know like the, the impact is far more than just cyber. Um, and, you know, and like I mentioned earlier, I think we've seen a lot of how that can be done through the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And uh, there was a great uh, take by um, ABC on Four Corners a couple of weeks ago that really dived into this and really looked into how it is, you know, a true combination of of cyber and, and the real world, if you like, and how the two can marry up and how they actually sort of align in terms of, you know, warfare and what that means. So there's no doubting, I think, that, you know, almost the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is... The first of probably, unfortunately, many of what these, how these are going to play out in the future um, and something that, you know, no nation um, is immune to. Spot on.
1: And I think the thing to think about there is just the the dependence on IT and technology infrastructure to do war. So like you're walking troops into a country, like that doesn't happen in the way it used to, you know, flares and, you know, smoke signals and, you know, all the things like it, it's happening digital. It's happening through the internet, um, and you saw you know Elon um, Musk flying Starlink in there to support the Ukraine, you know, side of the war. Like that points to you know, the attack surface isn't physical, it's not just kinetic and blown up tanks, but it's actually absolutely the IT side of the, of the uh, equation is is massive. Um, it's interesting, Dan, you probably saw it as well. Like AGL, um, made some comments on the The Australian Cybersecurity Strategy discussion. So, like Claire's working on the 2020, sorry, 2030 um, uh, Cyber Strategy, kind of you know the look ahead um, approach. Um, But AGL have kind of come in and and sort of like honestly said a lot of fairly common sense stuff. But again, stuff that I suppose the the industry has been calling for and calling out for some time. We I think we talked about it a little while ago. um, You know, the idea of the government's almost having a set of standards or vetting platforms and providers based on their cybersecurity so that, you know, when somebody's going to go buy something, it's not a, a crapshoot or a guessing game to figure out, like, sure, man, is this going to be safe or not. Um, very complex. Obviously, that starts to introduce kind of difficulties for smaller players because they then have to try and, you know, get into the, the position where they've are, they got the, you know, the the cyber blue tick of, um, you know, you're your safe to use or whatever. So, you know, not without... Um, uh not without difficulties but yeah interesting CAGL's comments it's I mean, people can google it and kind of read what they've come back with um stuff around that and then I think the sharing of threat intel which I think is is pretty interesting and I think the government is moving to do stuff like that with um I think it's called a CTIS um which has been worked on by a few organizations in in Australia so like it's already kind of moving that direction um and then you know stuff around not paying ransom um not have, sorry, not having laws that ban the paying of ransoms, which the Insurance Council of Australia, I think, also came out against. Um, and I, AGL's perspective on that is probably reasonable, which is, you know, if we're providing energy or, if, you know, if somebody's in healthcare and saving lives is dependent on paying a ransom, then, you know, like, um, I'd certainly break the law.
0: Yeah, Definitely uh, one that this one's never going away, right, and will continue to evolve. But, it, and it's, but it's interesting, um, I think, some of the language being used, uh, I think, to capture the headlines and, I guess, keep it in, in mainstream media. And that's, I think that's a good thing for everybody in terms of continuing to raise awareness and, and the criticality of, of what you know, cyber security and cyber resilience really means uh, for the nation. So that's always a good thing. That was the last of our deep dive stories. We're going to run over a few of the headlines that have been making the news lately. The first one is Google OAuth bug has left accounts open to permanent compromise. Sounds bad, yeah.
1: You know, I really want to, you know, do the the voice thing here and go, OAuth, you know, um, like you're disappointed with OAuth. <laughs> I feel like that's a new joke and I guarantee you like it's been done a thousand times. Um, but look, I mean, you know, OAuth is great. It's a good thing. This isn't a, an anti-OAuth thing. Um, but it does point out to, you know, some of the issues when you're using um, approaches like this, OAuth is the thing where, um, you can basically um, give an app permissions in, say, a Google environment or others. So, you know, that thing where it sort of pops up the thing. Do you want to let, um, you know, Dan's app do X, Y, Z, um, ABC, um, F, G, Y? And you say yes, and you give it the permissions, and then off it goes. Um, an organization, no surprise, an Israeli security uh, organization. Um, are they not all <laughs> Israeli these days? called called Asterix. Um, Basically, found the zero day. Let Google know. Fix is in place since the seventh of April. So, an early birthday present for me. Um, thanks, Google. <laughs> um, given that I am a Google user, um, so you know, fixes out there, all done and dusted. Um, but what was it, what was like kind of scary when you read through this and, and the kind of description of it on um, Asterix's website? You could basically, if you got the compromised file onto the user's um, like account or whatever. The attacker could basically hide the app from the Google Marketplace. So they've inherited all these permissions, and you know potentially can access things like calendar and email and all, all the good stuff that's on Google. Um, but if it's like say say I'm the attacker Dan, and, and you've kind of like got the um, the attacked application on on your Google account, as the attacker I can just turn it off. So then when you go to Google Marketplace, you literally don't even know that this has happened. It's sitting in the background. And then as an attacker, I can kind of turn it back on and then do my thing and then turn it off and basically go into kind of stealth mode and hide in the background. Um, Like I say, it's been fixed, so, you know, job done. But um, it definitely points to, it's pretty scary, anything long and the short of it.
0: Well, uh, as a security professional, um, using Google rather than uh, iPhone, I... I, I do question that, but that's okay. Like, we'll uh, we'll let that one slide. And uh, it's good that, uh, you know, at least the, this uh, comp- potential compromise has been fixed in the background for you. I'm sure there'll be more to come. It, it hurts because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> the next story is the equivalent now of WikiLeaks or what's being called Discord leaks. Uh, a 21-year-old has set the world alight with releasing a whole range of sensitive documents, including Pentagon-related information. Yeah, but
1: it's kind of a shocker, right? I mean, like you say, the biggest biggest one for quite some time. And I think what's shocked everybody is just how casually this has happened. Um, you know, the guy involved um, who allegedly kind of leaked the, the Pentagon documents, he was on a Discord server. I, I, I'm of an age where Discord is not really part of my life, Dan. Uh, I don't know if... Yeah, you know, I don't know if you're, you he would have got that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a gamer. I don't do streaming. I'm not really. I'm aware of it. I've been aware of it for years, but I've never actually been on it. But uh, basically, there it's distributed. So you know, people a little bit like Mastodon, I suppose, where you can set up your own server. People join and whatever they they do stuff on there. Um, again, not a Discord user, so I'm just I'm going on hearsay. Um, but you know, the, this is way we need Vin. This is 100%. This is like, this is where it's clear that we need Vin uh, as part of these conversations. <laughs> um, Vin probably has his own Discord server that he's probably on right now over there in Japan. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, our friend, uh, in, in what seems like a desire to kind of be a little bravado and show a little bit of like how awesome uh, he was decided to start sharing like very classified military documents and um, I have things like CIA briefings on discord and I mean it's it's pretty leaky um like like most collaboration platforms are right it's pretty pretty easy to kind of yoink something off one and then put it onto something else and that's sort of what happened um you know the the leaks are out there um, but it's not a yeah, not a, a small thing. And I think originally people were thinking like this must be a joke, and then it turned out actually they're they're very very real uh, documents, and they relate to things like you know um, battle plans and strategies for Ukraine. You know, we literally were just just been talking about that. So you know, this stuff has fallen into the hands of um, well, the world. Like that's the scary thing. It's not like the, um, you know, one particular nation state attacked and were able to get to a particular set of CIA briefings. This stuff is just out there in the world now, you know, viewable by anybody who wants to go and find them. Um it, Huge story. Like, I think it's been so well covered in the mainstream media. Um, Actually, <laughs> Dmitry Alperovich, who was on the show a couple of years ago, is on a show called Pivot. Um, and the, I think, like, the last episode or maybe the one before, and they talk about this at, at some length, and Dmitry's got some really interesting uh, thoughts on on just the, the difficulty of insider threat. You you mentioned this already, but you know, there are his point was that there's so many job roles that like in essence you have to provide them the rights and the permissions to be able to do their job. And then the reality is that with all those permissions comes the risk of um, you know, an insider actually yanking stuff out of an environment and um yeah, but, but oh god, I don't even want to laugh, but I'm like putting it on a Discord server. It just seems so it's so such a trivial platform for such an important set of documents to land on. It just seems so disconnected. It's bizarre.
0: Indeed. Well, uh, the next story is ransomware hackers exploit paper cut bugs. Ooh, this sounds like this sounds like a tough one. Tell us about it.
1: As somebody who absolutely hates paper cuts, uh, not the software, but like just you know the, the unbelievable pain a little bit of paper can cause. Um, aptly named, I'm sure. Um, so PaperCut is essentially uh, print management software and, um, I, did, I don't know, I've never used paper I don't think, uh, but it's, it's actually, um, it is used by a lot of the big brands out there. So, you know, probably the printer that's sitting in your home office or your office potentially uses paper cut as a, as the print management software. Um, but you know, basically, um, they're the, the gang that's associated with a clock ransomware, um, we're basically actively exploiting, uh, vulnerabilities in that, um, in that software. Um, so yeah, I suppose just anyone who's potentially using it kind of be aware and the, the, exploits have been patched by the, uh, the organization that produces Papercut. So, you know, in theory you should be protected if you're able to do patching. Um, but yeah, like the advice is go, go update your software. If you actually are using Papercut or make sure that you're on the latest version of, um, Uh, of their software.
0: Indeed. Well, the final story is yeah, uh, You may have heard of this thing that's pretty big down here in Melbourne called the AFL. And just in terms of a, a, a general social sort of interest story around, you know, cyber and making sort of the mainstream news, um, one of uh, a leading AFL player came out last week and has sort of declared how they've basically been scammed of most of their life savings um, recently and have actually walked through the whole social engineering part, how it happened, the text messages received, the phone calls, the talking to people, the way that it worked. Um, and interestingly, um, it was done, and he was banking with uh, National Australia Bank, and then NAB have rolled out their CEO as part of sort of the, the narrative and the conversation and talking about what happens and the importance, obviously part of which is, for them to sort of take back control of the narrative and, and show that, you know, they're actually the good guys and they were part of being scammed, not actually, you know, not 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 the uh, perpetrators. But it's also showing just the importance of cyber as a conversation. Um, so, you know, this is, again, in the weekend paper, and I still see some people reading actual physical newspapers, right, a, a two-page spread, um, you know, in the biggest paper in the country, all of those sort of things. So, it does show how these stories are, you know, continuing to, I guess, happen and make the news, you know, unfortunately for the wrong reasons than that. But uh, we certainly feel for, uh, you know, anybody that, you know, has fallen victim, but it does show that like, you know, it can happen to anyone and whether you think you're really well aware and, you know, and know what to look out for, as you mentioned before, anybody from, you know, people in IT and developers and everybody's vulnerable through to, you know, high-profile sort of sports people as well. So one of those interesting ones and just sort of being a Melbourneian, I could not let that one pass without, without making the news in the last couple of days as well.
1: And, and AFL, that's the game that you guys stole from Ireland, right? It's basically Gaelic football. Yeah, I, I get it. I remember that game now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh goodness me! Um, <clears throat> on that note, I think that might be the, uh, the a good way to end um, our first news episode back. So until next week, if you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump on to and check out some of the latest articles, including zero trust pitfalls and how to avoid them, and a look at how collaboration tools are essential but risky, and finally check out our first ever edition of the Get Cyber Resilient magazine. A digital copy is available from the site. Thanks for listening and until next time, stay safe.